Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Alex J. Bellamy, author of Warmonger, Vladimir Putin's Imperial Wars, published today by Agenda. He begins the book with, War was always central to Putin's project, and that's not just the Second Chechen War that made him, but the cautious West-testing wars in Georgia and eastern Ukraine that emboldened him, and the Western-style war from the air in Syria that marked, in his mind, Russia's return to great power status. But even more than that, writes Professor Bellamy, quote, This is war as disposition that extends beyond military force to economics, formation, and political murder. But it is war nonetheless, and the West was bound to catch on sooner or later. Tragically, it was not until the quiet of dawn was pierced by the sound of missiles crashing into Kyiv on the 24th of February 2022 that the wool was finally removed from Western eyes. This new book is a short history of that war as disposition, how it tapped into Russian popular thought, attracted and repelled their neighbours, shook up the geopolitics of Europe and the Middle East, and how it will end for Putinism. Alex J. Bellamy is Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Queensland, originally from South Yorkshire and with a PhD from the University of Wales. Since Kosovo and International Society in 2002, he has written 15 books as sole author, including World Peace and How We Can Achieve It in 2019, and Syria Betrayed, Atrocities, War, and the Failure of International Diplomacy in 2022. Alex, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Why did you decide to write this book now? I I wondered whether it was sparked by your work on the Syria Betrayed book. So yeah, it was partly inspired by that. So as I was working on Syria, it became clear that something fundamental was changing in world politics, that like the the rules of the road from the post-Cold War era were changing and, and the West and institutions like the UN weren't quite um, getting up to speed. And, and one of those stories was the growth of Russian imperialism and the way that Russia was starting to project itself into the world and starting to use military force to to achieve its interests and objectives. And it, it struck me that in, in Syria, there was a kind of a return to a a more violent sort of politics where you know politics at the barrel of the gun or, or the missile was was holding supreme and that as i said the west really wasn't kind of catching on and so to explain what russia was doing in syria we had to kind of take a step back and think in terms of what had happened in, in ukraine and before that georgia and also look at you know how putin viewed the world and putin's relationship with popular revolutions and the color revolutions so, so in a sense this book is a, a spin-off from syria betrayed but in a sense too it's it's a return to where where i started so i've had an abiding interest in eastern europe since the days of my my phd and i've, I've grown increasingly exasperated at both the the policy community and the academic community's inability to grasp what's been going on in, in, in Russia and in the Eastern European space for the last couple of decades. And I think that really crystallized just before the, the war in Ukraine or the, the, the recent full-scale invasion of Ukraine, where international relations experts were sort of unanimous in their judgment that Putin had no intention to invade Ukraine or that it was all about NATO. And this was completely out of step with what the Russian government itself was saying was going on. And so it, it, it struck me that it was really important to take a step back and look at what's been going on and to understand how what's happening in Russia is fundamentally changing world politics. Were you pretty confident before the full-scale invasion that they would invade? Because as you say, that, that, would, that would have been a minority view at the time. It was, and no, I wasn't fully confident, to be honest, but neither was I so confident that they, that they wouldn't. Um, 
one of the things striking after the event is, of course, um, you know, one organization called it exactly right, and that was U.S. intelligence, who called not only that the invasion was going to happen, but were able to place when the invasion was going to happen um, to within the day. Now, without the sort of information that they were seeing, it was impossible to impossible to know. But clearly, you can't have that sort of um, escalation, that sort of pre-deployment over that period without there being some sort of serious intent. And we'd already seen Russia invade Ukraine back in back in 2014. So it's not like this was an entirely new species um, of event. So I think what's clear now in hindsight is that the decision and plans had been made months in advance. And actually what we were seeing in those weeks leading up to February and what the US was clearly understanding and seeing was that the decisions had already been made, the pre-deployment moves had already been made, and there was a period weeks before the invasion actually started where a decision had been taken that it was going to happen irrespective of what uh, of, of the diplomacy. And, and in hindsight, it's clear that all that diplomacy around the... Um, you know, the issuing of threats and demands was just sort of shadow boxing to buy time whilst the military preparations were brought to bear. But it is striking, as you say, that the whole field kind of got it wrong from both kind of hard-headed realists on, on the one hand who thought it was all about sort of NATO expansion and Russian bargaining to those sort of on the left who sort of have a, a knee-jerk anti-Westernism, if you like, and, and so always tend to believe the worst of the West and the best of everyone else, even if that means believing the best of somebody like uh, Vladimir Putin. Early on in the book, you make the point that imperialism and warfare are at the core of Putin's what you call social contract with the Russian people. Can, can you explain that thought? Yeah, so this idea of a social contract is basically Putin's bargain with the Russian people. And, and Putin's bargain with the Russian people kind of starts with Putin being the antithesis to Boris Yeltsin. So Putin being everything that Boris Yeltsin wasn't. So that is sober, fit, healthy, vibrant, um, staunchly pro-Russian, someone who's capable of making Russians feel good about being Russian again. So the, the bargain is basically Putin promises that he will improve the economy, reduce unemployment, reduce crime, reduce terrorism, make everybody's lives better. He also promises that he will make Russians feel good about being Russian again by sort of getting Russia back to its great power status, sort of rebuilding the Russian empire, if you like, getting other powers to treat Russia as a great power like Russia and Russians think it should be treated. And in return for that, Putin asks for the loyalty of the people. That is, that they place their faith in him, they obey his commands, they look the other way as he kind of guts the media or hands out prize state assets to political allies. But they basically trust that Putin as a kind of a new czar will improve their lives in return for their for their undying loyalty. And that essentially is the social contract that Putin struck with the Russian people. And he struck that contract right from the very beginning. So in Putin's very first public statements before his election as president, once he's nominated as Yeltsin's successor, Putin starts setting out this agenda. And it's not fully formed in the first instance, but it is clearly discernible and clearly there. That is, Putin is the antithesis of Yeltsin and this idea that in, in return for better lives, People should give their faith and support to Putin. And that's a project that starts by being a, a consensual project. And there's no doubt that in the first 
you know, Putin's first two terms, this is an entirely consensual project. He is by far the most popular um, political leader in Russia. Most Russians think that Putin is doing a, a splendid job and they're willing to back and support him. And that's including through um, the second Chechen war. That then changes after Putin leaves and then comes back and, and the politics becomes less consensual as some of the gaps and holes and problems become more manifest. Was another element that he brought to the social contract something that maybe Russians didn't buy into as much as he did? You cite that famous quote from him that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century and stressed that this wasn't a lament for socialism, but actually for the dividing of the Russian world and the leaving behind of all these Russians stranded in Ukraine and Georgia and elsewhere. How how keenly do you think that ordinary Russians feel that? Uh, I mean, he clearly does, but does does the Russian on the street feel that lament for for lost uh, fellow Russian speakers in the same way? That's a great question, it's, and it's difficult, of course, to pin down precisely. In in some respects, it was a very much a real thing, and uh, the shock of Soviet collapse was just that—a shock. Most people didn't see it coming. They assumed that the Soviet Union was here to stay. They assumed that it was going to be a superpower well into the future, and so the, the shock was was a shock, and it was a sudden change that had an impact not just on people's livelihoods, you know, loss of jobs, catastrophic collapse of the economy, but also on their kind of sense of pride and on their sense of identity. So that clearly was a shock. That said, there's also no doubt that Putin and people around Putin um, play it up. So people, Russians feel a sense of humiliation, for example, to some extent, because their government is constantly telling them that they need to feel a sense of humiliation. In the 90s itself, through those Yeltsin years, you know, most Russians were focused on just trying to get by. They weren't focused on big questions of, of history and national humiliation. They were trying to make a living, trying to get jobs, trying to learn the rules of this new capitalist system. So in a sense, this, this idea of a, of a great sense of loss and, and a sense of humiliation is something that was sold to people. So it was playing on something that was very much there the shock of collapse, but it was also a narrative that was sold to them. And part of that narrative, in some sense, was talking up just how bad things were under Yeltsin. And and in some ways, that didn't always make sense. So, for example, one key part of the narrative was that there was, you know, a massive expansion of organised crime under Yeltsin. And indeed there was. But that expansion of organised crime hasn't been curtailed by by Putin. Another is the expansion of of murder. So we know that the murder rate in Russia went up significantly after Soviet collapse, but it hasn't come down under Putin. And yet the narrative plays up the downside of the Yeltsin um, era and then purports to suggest that Putin has been the answer to that, irrespective of whether In fact, things have improved in the way Putin and Putin's allies claim that they have. So, yes, there is a sense of loss, but it's also part of a key part of the Putin narrative to play that up. And of course, it's much easier to sell that if you can blame that loss on other people. So if the reason why the Soviet Union collapsed, if the reason why the economy collapsed was because of perfidious people elsewhere, be it perfidious non-Russian communists or the perfidious East Europeans or the machinations of the West, 
all of this gets kind of bolted together into ever more increasingly elaborate conspiracy theories that sort of explain why it was the Soviet Union collapsed as if it was something other than the internal contradictions of, of, of the Union itself and becomes the key part of the story that Putin and his allies sell to the Russian people. We've all seen the failings of the Russian military over the last year and a half, but come as your first war, the first war in your book, Chechnya is a really fascinating case study because, as you, as you point out, Yeltsin and then Putin chose a small, winnable war. They pursue it with extraordinary brutality and, the, and then they fail. And as you write, quote, it's the Kadyrov clan that finally won the Chechen war, not the Russian army. In truth, victory in Chechnya was costly, contingent, and ultimately achieved by Russia's money not its military might. The mythos of Putinism forced in Chechnya had something of the Potemkin about it. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so picking up this theme about Putin as the antithesis to Yeltsin, the clearest symbol of that is, of course, Chechnya. There could have been nothing that symbolised the utter failure and degradation of Russia under Yeltsin than the uh, First Chechen War of 1994-96, where you have young Russian conscripts driving into Grozny in tanks, being surrounded by lightly armed Chechens and decimated, whole units wiped out. Um, then after that bloody battle, Russia is finally able to take control of Grozny, only to then lose it in a mass uprising in 1996, again with, with huge carnage, and then to have to withdraw all of Russia's troops so that you have a proto-state within Russia itself. And in fact, the only part of the former Soviet space at that point that didn't have any Russian soldiers in it at all. That's just how deep the humiliation and the disaster in Chechnya was. And then you contrast that with the image of what was portrayed of, of the Second Chechen War, this great victorious war, Russia decimating Grozny, but then eventually taking over Chechnya reasserting control and after fighting a protracted insurgency, finally defeating the Chechens. So you've got this story and that story is at the heart of the, of the Putin narrative. But when you look more closely at the second part of that story, as the quote you've just given suggests, it's not quite as it appears. Firstly, the, the victory is nothing like as complete as we might say. In fact, the war is still going on by, by 2006. Yes, Russian forces have retaken Grozny, largely by flattening the city and then just moving in and picking over the remains, the same tactic that they would go on to use with their Syrian allies in Aleppo. But yes, again, the Chechen fighters have withdrawn to the mountains and are fighting an insurgency that the Russians can't defeat reminiscent of Afghanistan in the late 1970s with similar sorts of tactics, both in terms of the indiscriminate bombarding of cities, but also in terms of these filtration um, camps and activities where literally forces would move into a village, take away the men and the boys, and through use of um, forced displacement, torture, and um, arbitrary killing, try to um, stem the flow of people into the into the Chechen armed groups. So you have a campaign that is full of atrocity crimes, couched as counterinsurgency, that still can't achieve its goal. You know, up to 2005-06, Chechens are still killing Russian soldiers, are still downing helicopters, are still ambushing tanks. And what changes it is is what was called Chechenization, basically buying off 
mainly the Kadyrov clan, and then the Kadyrov clan doing that with other clan leaders who were getting a little fed up of permanent war, and then basically fighting a, a civil war within Chechnya. The Kadyrovs, Russian-backed militia against other militia, more Islamist militia, until the Kadyrovs ultimately won. And so you have, oddly, in, in, in Chechnya today, Chechnya is formally part of Russia, but the law of Moscow does not prevail in, in, in Chechnya. In a sense, Chechnya today is almost the same status as, as the Chechnya that the early secessionists wanted for Chechnya, a self-governing um, republic free of control from Moscow, but with the added advantage that Moscow is paying all the bills um, for the Kadyrov clan. So you have this this narrative, but the reality is is much messier and, and much more complex, and the victory Putin won much, much less complete. And when we look at Putin's term in power, you know, we talk about those first two terms. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that for almost the entirety of those first two terms, the conflict in Chechnya is still ongoing. It's it's not resolved. And this explains why there may be may have been drift in relation to some of the other kind of neighborhood issues. It was because this one core issue in in the heart of Russia's sense of itself and its own internal security is still not resolved. Do you think he learned from Chechnya that he could dress up defeats as victories? Or in fact, do you think he would perceive it as a defeat? That's a great question. Because I think it's, it's, a, it's always difficult when you write a book that's focused on, on on one person. It's difficult to get into his head, and it's also difficult to know um, how much of it is Putin and how much of it is the people around Putin. And one of the things I try to convey in the book is that whilst the focus is on Putin, Putin can only be Putin because he is surrounded by loyal followers who think and act like he do he does, and there is a whole kind of army of bureaucrats and the literal army who are kind of willingly part of this of this project i think the point about the media and the portrayal of victory is one that he had learned by 2006 but i'm not sure i think he'd already learned it before the end of the chechen war and he learned it in the first kind of couple of years of his presidency one of the most famous incidences was with the uh, sinking of the Kursk submarine very early on in his presidency. And Putin handled this very, very badly. He was on holiday. He arrived back late. There were unscripted photo opportunities with mothers of the victims that went horribly wrong for him. And Putin's response to this was to realize that he needed to control the media, that the media was was the problem. And, and later on, on, on Chechnya, he kind of concluded that Yeltsin's problem back in the 90s had actually been with the media, that the media had been unpatriotic, that the media had undermined public support for the war. So one of the very first things Putin does after Kursk is basically bring as much of the media as he can under the state's control. So that by the time we get to 2006-07, almost all of the mainstream media are state-managed and governed. So they are just giving the one message. There are still some independent journalists. Um, one of the positive features of the Yeltsin years was that there was freedom of speech, there was openness, there was uh, press freedom. So it took a while to bring all of that under control. But by 2006-07, the main media was firmly under control. And this allowed then Putin and his allies to control the message. And in a sense, you know, you as, as with any kind of... Um, you know, Potemkin village, sometimes truth pops out from under the covers. And in the case of Chechnya, 
it was ongoing Chechen terrorist attacks into the heart of Russia, including into the heart of Moscow itself. But this had a kind of a double-edged effect. On the one hand, it did it, it, it should have raised questions in people's minds about just how complete this victory had been, the fact that Chechens were still able to strike into the heart of Moscow. If that had happened in the UK or in the US, that is precisely the questions that would have been asked. In Russia, though, what it did is was, was keep the Chechen issue alive and basically allow Putin to keep saying, look, we have this ongoing terrorist problem. This is why you need to place your faith in me. Only I can deal with, with the Chechens. Yeltsin couldn't deal with it. The communists can't deal with it. Only I can deal with it. So in a sense, the continuation of that low-level war, and particularly the terrorist attacks in Russia itself, helped Putin sort of sustain the sense of permanent war that was a kind of key part of his story. I mean, you warned there against potentially personalizing the whole thing. And I've got a I've got a depersonalized question here, which is after reading the chapter on the destabilization of Georgia and the collapse of the USSR and then the uh what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, which by the way, I would recommend anybody to read that chapter given what's happening there at the moment. Your explanation of the interplay between the autonomous Soviet Socialist Republics and the autonomous oblasts. I was very struck at how inevitable this all felt once the overarching empire or federal state was lost, just like Yugoslavia. So you began your career as a student of the Balkan conflicts. How inevitable is this kind of breakdown? So I think the institutional structure, it makes it possible, but not inevitable. So the institutions matter in terms of what, what you have in that sort of federal system is you have subnational entities that have all the trappings of statehood. So they have flags, they have symbols, they have parliaments, and with that come elites, right? So you have established kind of national elites who run all of these things. And, and they, in, this, in the Soviet system, as well as the Yugoslav system, these um, institutions, the um, ASSRs and the autonomous oblasts were also formally attached to particular nations. So it wasn't just that you had political institutions, it's that you had political institutions that were formally attached to um, particular nations. So in the case of Georgia, the South Ossetians and the Abkhaz. In, in Yugoslavia, obviously, you know, Croatia, Serbia um, and the rest. What that meant is that as the empire as the federal system starts to collapse, you have embedded elites who are competing for political power and they're jostling for position and they have all the assets of, of sovereignty. So in a sense, you, you have a, a, a system where the, the thing that made it all hang together is collapsing and you have these different centers of political power that start to, start to compete. And I think that institutional arrangement explains why certain things became armed conflicts and, and others didn't. And I think Georgia is a really good example of this because what's interesting in the Georgia case, so part of the Georgian story is, is so you have the Soviet Union is going into decline, Gorbachev's economic policies are failing, but his glasnost policies are allowing expressions of nationalism. So in Georgia, you have the rise of Georgian nationalism which is fairly critical and fairly antagonistic towards national minorities 
in Georgia. And two of those national minorities are the South Ossetians and the Abkhaz. So they feel threatened. And as a result, they look to their institutions in order to protect them from the Georgians. And then you get secessionism. That's the kind of standard story. The role that in the institutions themselves are playing can be seen in the Georgian case because the, because the South Ossetians and the Abkhaz are not the only national minorities in Georgia. In fact, they're not even the largest national minorities in Georgia. There are more Azerbaijanis and Armenians in Georgia than there are South Ossetians um, and Abkhaz. And the Azerbaijan minorities are equally um, threatened or fearful by this rising Georgian nationalism. So why is it that the smaller South Ossetians produce a secessionist uprising and the, the larger national minorities, the Azeris and Armenians and others, don't? And the answer to that is because the former have these state-like bodies already in place and the latter don't. You can another example you can use from, from from Georgia to see the same thing is Ajaria. So Ajaria is a part of Georgia in the um, far uh, southwest, so abutting Turkey. And this was a, an area that was also a, an autonomous republic, so had all of the the trappings. But Ajarians were are basically ethnic Georgians, many of whom didn't reconvert from Islam back to Christianity when the region shifted from being controlled by the Persians and Ottomans to being controlled by the Russians. But they, they, they consider themselves ethnic Georgians. Now, Ajaria didn't go full secessionist independence, but it did go de facto secessionism. So until Saakashvili came into power, Ajaria was basically a self-governing quasi-state made up of people who themselves would describe themselves as Georgian. So in that example, again, we see the power of those kind of local political institutions and the power of local elites driving um, political disputes, even in the absence, in that case, of inter-ethnic division. So I think it's, it, it doesn't make conflict inevitable, but it does make it possible. Um, to go back to the case we were just talking about, Chechnya, the, the case that we often compare to Chechnya is Tatarstan that had a similar a similar fractious history with Russia, was also part of Russia, had a similar political movement in the late 80s, early 90s in favour of um, greater political autonomy. But unlike Chechnya, the leadership in Tatarstan decided to basically do a deal with Moscow. And Moscow granted Tatarstan sweeping autonomy in, refer in return for Tatarstan remaining within the Russian Federation. We can't explain why that happened whilst Chechnya went to war without adding this kind of extra layer of the personalities involved. So what was it that was going on in Chechnya that wasn't going on in Tatarstan? Well, there's things to do with the particular positions of, of Yeltsin and Dudayev and Khuzbalatov that drive one to war and, and one not. So institutions and that setup gets you part of the way there, and it's a structural weakness, especially when the centre starts to collapse. But it's not the whole story. There's also a, another way in which the particular way in which the Soviet Union was set up actually inhibited these different institutions from solving their own problems it's because they're organised in what we call in, in Russian politics 
and also Soviet politics, the power vertical. And this is where kind of political power is organized vertically rather than horizontally. So if if an autonomous oblast has a problem with the republic in which it's situated, so let's say South Ossetia has a problem with Georgia and it's 1985, it doesn't go to Tbilisi to negotiate that problem directly. Instead, it appeals to Moscow and Moscow deliberates. And what that means is that these different elites don't have a habit of working out their problems between themselves. What they have a habit of doing is appealing to Moscow to resolve their problems for them, which means that once Moscow is no longer able or willing to do that, they've got no framework or background or or culture of negotiating their their problems themselves. And, And so they immediately go to more violent forms of conflict. The Georgian episodes is particularly interesting. Well, a lot of it's interesting, but the Georgia episode, especially so in terms of potentially bad timing. I mean, we can see now, years later, the the, the personal failings that Saakashvili had. But do you think that without his missteps, Putin would have found a reason to test the West in those autonomous regions anyway? Or was this quite driven by by the Georgians, do you think, the timing of it? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of the great unknowns. So in, in, in the Georgian war in 2008 is, is so difficult to unravel because on the one hand, you've got long-term trends and policies that are pulling towards war. And on the other hand, it seems that no one actually chose the timing of that war. And by that, I mean, the point at which the war started, Georgia's first battalion, so a quarter of its regular fighting force, is actually in Iraq, not in Georgia. So if the timetable for war has been driven by Saakashvili. He's driven it really, really badly by picking a time when a quarter of his main fighting force isn't even in the country. And, and, the he, same and he, time, he was doing that basically to show to 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 the Americans and to the West that he was a he was a soldier, right? Absolutely. So he's doing that too because he wants to pull Georgia towards NATO and the EU. To get into NATO, he wants to carry American favor, and so he carries American favor by contributing forces to the coalition in in Iraq. And uh, Georgia is the largest per capita contributor of forces to uh, the the coalition in Iraq um, because he's trying to carry American favor. And at the same time, it's the same on the Russian side. So on the one hand, you've got evidence of preparations, but on the other, neither Putin, who was by then prime minister, not president having formally stepped down and medvedev neither of them were in a position to have been ordering and instructing um attacks which makes this then a, a mystery and i think it comes down to the preparation for war was long in the making but the timing was was a case of misperception misunderstanding and then ultimately i think on the on, on the part of Saikashvili, a panic i think he panicked at the last moment to explain that we need to sort of take a step back and see the the broader Putin project, because I think the broader project also speaks to what was happening and what has happened in Ukraine as well. And that project is about reasserting in Putin's mind, as it is in Putin's mind, this idea of Russia as a great power. And what is it that great powers have in Putin's mind? Well, great powers have spheres of influence. That is a ring of countries around them that basically do the bidding of of the central power. This is how Putin understands NATO. Putin thinks that NATO 
is very much like the the CSTO in 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 Eastern Europe. That it is an American led, and the European states are basically paying homage to the US and do the Americans' bidding. So what he wants to do is he wants to influence countries to remain within the Russian orbit. So what he wants is the whole of Georgia to remain within the Russian orbit. And that means a member of the Commonwealth of Independent States, a member of the CSTO. It means not partnering with the EU, and it means not joining NATO. Now, how is Putin going to try and do this? Well, the problem that Russia has is that it doesn't have much in the way of soft power. And by soft power, we mean those things that some states might use to attract others to it, be it sort of economics or aspects of its culture that people find attractive. The problem that, that, that Putin and Russia has is that there's not much about it that others find attractive. It, it, it has an economy based on oil, but, you know, an oil and gas, but that's about it. So what happens is, you know, a state like Georgia starts to drift towards the West. Putin used the initial wars in Georgia in the early 1990s, not Putin, so Yeltsin used those wars to bind Georgia into Russia. Those wars were basically resolved in 93-94 in South Ossetia and Abkhazia with a deal that basically said, in return for these states remaining kind of de facto limbo states and a peace policed by Russian peacekeepers, Georgia will remain firmly within the Russian orbit. And so if you like, Russia under Yeltsin is using South Ossetia and Abkhazia as kind of collateral to keep Georgia in the Russian orbit. And this is a deal that the Georgian president at the time, Eduard Shevardnadze, who was Gorbachev's foreign minister, is basically forced to make because in 1994, Georgia is about to collapse. The state as a whole is, is about to collapse and he needs Russia's support to get these two wars ended and to prop up the state. But not long after 1994, Shevardnadze himself starts to try and find ways of trying to wriggle out of this disagreement because most Georgians um, are pro-Western. This buying into the Russian world is inhibiting Georgian economic growth and reform. And, and the economy has collapsed. So Shevardnadze is trying to, to wriggle out, and Yeltsin is trying to, to stop him from wriggling out. So, But still, we see the, the, those signs. And, and it's actually Shevardnadze who first says that he wants Georgia to join NATO uh, sometime in the future. Now, then we have the Rose Revolution, which brings Saakashvili into, into power, and we get Yeltsin replaced by Putin. So on both sides we then get a kind of an amplification of the underlying underlying conflict. Putin still wants to use Abkhazia and South Ossetia to force Georgia to remain within the Russian orbit. Sarkashvili is now saying, you know, his whole politics is is liberal, is westernizing. It's about moving Georgia into closer partnership with the EU and NATO. So you have this this clash. What happens then is is Putin and Russia basically try and ramp up the pressure through using Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So they try to move towards what we've called, and I call in the book, creeping annexation. And this is a policy that basically involves trying to permanently wean those two entities away from Georgia and into the Russian orbit in order to maximise the leverage and the pressure you can apply on Georgia and also to inhibit Western institutions from ever 
allowing Georgia in on the argument that NATO and the EU is not going to admit a, as a member a country part of whose territory is literally occupied by by Russians. So you've got this the, the strategy of creeping annexation, and it runs. There are multiple strands to it, but the idea is that Putin wants to prize those away from Georgia in order to influence Georgia. And he wants to do that, if he can, without having to use force, by sort of incrementally moving those two republics away, by, for example, um, letting everyone in those republics have Russian passports so they suddenly become Russian citizens, by making sure that um, their economies are tied closely to Russia's, that their security ministries are run by Russians. So it's a whole a whole series of measures that unfold over a number of years that are, are moving these two entities away from Georgia and closer to Russia. And, and of course, Saakashvili is, is pushing against that. Now, things start to come to a head in 2008. Part of the reason for that are things that are happening internationally. So you have the West recognizes Kosovo as an as a independent state, and Putin says, well, this means that I can go ahead and recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And you have this famous 2008 summit, NATO summit in Bucharest, where famously Georgia and Ukraine ask for membership action plans to join NATO. And NATO says no, but then as a sign of a, as a concession and an American insistence to Ukraine and Georgia, NATO says basically you will become members at some point in the future. Now, this is the, this is the moment that, that a lot of analysts get hot under the collar about and say, well, this explains then why NATO, why Putin, sorry, invades Georgia and, and Ukraine. But Putin is politically savvy and he can look behind the rhetoric of statements and look at what's actually just happened in Bucharest. Because what's actually just happened in Bucharest is Georgia has said, we want a pathway into NATO, and NATO has said, no. That's actually what's just happened. So Bucharest is, in a sense, a green light to Putin, and it's also a green light to South Ossetians and Abkhaz. And what you see after Bucharest very, very quickly is an increase in the intensity. You see more Russian peacekeepers, so-called peacekeepers, being deployed into South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So that within a few months, the numbers there have almost doubled what they were the previous year. You also see increasing um, violence and increasing use of force. Now, to what extent that is Moscow-generated and to what extent that is for South Ossetians, there's some theory that actually the South Ossetian leadership is trying to drive this conflict in expectation that Russia will then intervene and, and solve the issue once and for all. I think it's somewhere most likely between those two and that the South Ossetians are, you know, they, they, they burn some Georgian villages, they shell some um, Georgian military positions. There is a general increase in violence. I think that's at least being encouraged by Moscow, if not explicitly ordered by Moscow. And then at the same time, you've got these huge Russian Russian military exercises just north of the border, where you have about 30,000 soldiers doing exercises that are based on a scenario of intervening in Georgia, assuming an escalation of violence there. So you, you put all of these things together and you create a, a kind of a context of profound anxiety in, in Tbilisi. 
And so it comes down to the crunch. And the, the question that I, I think, why I think Saakashvili panics is, I think he's looking at the situation and he's seeing this creeping annexation. He's seeing these military maneuvers. He's seeing Russia increasing his its military position in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And his judgment is, if we don't do anything about that, in a few months' time, we're going to wake up having lost those two republics. And this is probably what Putin's strategy is, this creeping annexation. Just do it all slowly, 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 until there's a point of no return and they become kind of de facto states. And so he panics and thinks, well, maybe if we do a short, sharp burst, we can try and get in ahead of ahead of the Russians. And so he orders close to midnight on, on the, the faithful, fateful night in early August, he orders this attack on South Ossetia. The attack opens up at like 11.30 p.m. And by 5 a.m. the next morning, Russian soldiers are coming through the tunnel from Russia into, into South Ossetia and, and you have the Georgian War, which su- suggests to me that those Russian forces were primed and ready to go. And that Saakashvili has panicked. He's overestimated his own capacity. But crucially for him, he has massively underestimated both the willingness of Russia to act and its preparedness to act. And, and, and sometimes we can you can kind of read intentions backwards by, by what happened. And the fact that Russia was able to deploy around 30,000 soldiers into Abkhazia and South Ossetia, including airborne troops and marine-borne troops, within three days, tells you that they're in a high level. They were in a high level of preparedness for that. They knew what they were doing. They knew where they were going. So the timing may not have been strictly of Russia's choosing, but there is no doubt at all that the Russian military was prepared for an imminent imminent conflict, and that Saakashvili just didn't know that. He thought they were unprepared and that he could force the issue in order to reverse this um, creeping annexation. After Georgia, you break down the Ukraine wars into part one and part two. Part one goes all the way from the colour revolution to 2014, and part two comes up to the full-scale invasion. By the time of the Minsk Accords, didn't Putin have the best possible outcome? He had Crimea annexed effectively recognised abroad, whatever politicians may say. <laughs> Plenty of Western politicians ready to deal with him. I mean, the the, the French, the new French president was already uh, talking about uh, détente three years later. Uh, he had Trump in the White House and serious leverage over Kyiv. Did he ever have to do any more than just wait out the end of sanctions? What do you think changed from 2014 onwards in, in Putin's mind? The first thing to do is take a step back and, again, remind ourselves of what Putin's trying to achieve in relation to Ukraine. And it's the same as what he's trying to achieve in relation to Georgia. He doesn't he doesn't want just additional territories for the sake of additional territories. He wants the whole of Ukraine to be part of this Russian imperial system. And in a sense, Ukraine matters a huge lot more to Putin than does Georgia, because the idea of a greater Russia, of a Russia beyond itself, makes absolutely no sense at all if Belarus and Ukraine aren't part of that. So that, in a sense, the whole Putin project, the whole international project of Putin relies on this 
imperial way of thinking about Ukraine. So the annexation of Crimea and the use of force in Donbass in 2014 are similar to the ways in which Putin and Russia was using territorial acquisition against Georgia as means of obtaining leverage. So it was partly punishment to Ukraine for the um, for the revolution and partly a way of then having leverage to prevent Ukraine moving closer to the West and to give Russia leverage to dictate future terms to Ukraine. Crimea was a, a slightly different case in that Crimea has this kind of particular place in the in the fantasies of, of Russian nationalists and hence you had the you know the annexation and, and and Putin's speech in the Duma where you had nationalist politicians you know weeping and of course that plays to his own popularity you know there's, there's a short-term gain there too for Putin in that he satisfies his nationalist supporters he portrays himself again as the great patriot so there's that additional thing going on there. But the big picture is, is trying to keep Ukraine within the Russian orbit. So what changes after, after 2014? Well, the, the first thing that changes is that he fails to be able to drive home Minsk and, and translate Minsk into the sort of concessions he was wanting to get from Ukraine. In particular, he wants a, he wants a deal that will give um, the Donbass basically in a veto over Ukrainian foreign policy. So he wants a, a, a new system of a federal arrangement in Ukraine, whereby basically the new federal entities in, in Donbass will have um, the power of veto over any legislation imposed on them by Kiev that they don't like, but also a veto over the direction of Ukrainian foreign policy. So this is his way of saying, well, you know, I'm going to prevent Ukraine from moving to the West, I can then kind of wait it out and eventually Ukraine Ukrainians will see the error of their ways and they'll return to the Russian fold. Why that doesn't work is because Ukraine kind of stabilizes itself and stabilizes its politics much more quickly than Putin thought he was going to do thought it was going to do. So Poroshenko has a has a handle on things really I mean, before 2014, and certainly by soon after, there's a degree of stability in Ukraine that Putin didn't expect. And so Ukraine starts pushing back on Minsk, and in particular on, on the timing of two elements of Minsk, which is elections, the withdrawal of foreign forces, and this transfer of authority to um, the new kind of this new federal arrangement. And basically, the way Putin sees it is that you first have elections, then you set up the new federal arrangements, and then at that point, foreign forces, i.e. Russian forces, will withdraw. Of course, the problem with that is you're never going to have free and fair elections whilst Russian forces are still in place and whilst refugees have been unable to go home. So Poroshenko is saying, well, no, the sequence has to be the other way around. First, the foreign forces have to withdraw, then you have to have the return of refugees, and then you can start the political process. And basically, you you end up with a with a logjam, and and the process just doesn't move forward. Then what happens is you get that huge shock to the status quo, which is the election of Zelensky, and that's a shock to the status quo in, in two senses. Firstly, in the run up to that election, Putin is trying to basically do what Russian leaders have done in Ukraine before and manipulate the Ukrainian government. So 
we, you know, we all know the role that Yanukovych played um, earlier in Ukrainian history. There's a character called Viktor Medvedchuk, who is sort of Russia's man in Ukraine, and he's running a political party and putting up candidates that are basically pro-Russian candidates. And they're running on the agenda of let's not take Ukraine to the West, let's return to the Russian fold. We'll get a better deal on, on gas and energy. We'll be able to resolve the conflicts in, in, in Donbass. Um, and Putin thinks that you know Ukrainians will, will, will flock to this cause, that this will have a, a serious dent when it comes to presidential elections. But it doesn't. And um, Medvedchuk, Medvedchuk's candidate gets, I think, 11%, something like 11% in, in the election that elects um, Zelensky to power. So it's a, it's a humiliating defeat. Putin then thinks, well, you know, Zelensky, who's this character? You know, he's a TV actor. He's not going to be very serious. I can just kind of browbeat him and he'll fall into line. But of course, Zelensky doesn't fall into line. And Zelensky also starts moving against Medvedchuk and other other kind of Russian interests that have infiltrated different parts of the Ukrainian um, government. And so this is a real threat to the to Putin's strategy of trying to bring all of Ukraine back into the Russian fold. So what do they do? Well, they ramp up the military pressure. You see increases of, of Russian incursions in, in the Black Sea, for instance. You see a tightening of, of the vice there. And then, of course, we get into COVID. And COVID has a whole, a whole range of effects, I think. One is uh, Putin doesn't have a good COVID. He's, he's isolated. He's even more removed from reality. And, you know, his fantasies grow larger. You know, it's, I think it's not a coincidence that he writes his famous 7,000-word essay on Ukraine, basically saying Ukraine's not a real country and never has been during his COVID lockdown. This essay is, in a sense, the, the crystallization of everything Putinism has been about for the previous two decades. It's this kind of drawing together of all these strands. And now he, he's written it down and he's describing himself publicly as the, you know, the new Peter the Great. The other thing that's going on as a result, maybe not as a result of COVID, but alongside COVID, is that it's not just in Ukraine that things are starting to fall apart. You've got those contested elections in Belarus. There's a very real possibility that Belarus might break, you know, a change of government in Belarus could take Belarus away from the Russian project. You've also got instability in Kazakhstan. So you've got this, this sense in Moscow that things are starting to unravel and that the, the approaches they'd taken to try and bring Ukraine back into the fold weren't working and that something else was needed. Now, what makes Putin think that an all-out invasion could work? Well, I think there's two things that makes Putin think that. One, and this kind of comes back to where we start, started with Syria, is he's looking at the Western world and he's seeing fragmentation, he's seeing discord, he's seeing um, economic decay, he's seeing a West that he thinks is incapable of marshalling any sort of response. And, and to come back to your question, this is the lesson he takes from 2014. He says, well, you know, I've literally annexed Crimea and all you've done is impose some sanctions that I can easily live with. So he thinks, well, the West is simply incapable of a meaningful response. But also, and, and this is a kind of a classic thing of, of longstanding authoritarians, he's gotten more divorced from reality. So Russia has a huge network of intelligence gathering and subversion in Ukraine. 
And the message that that network is given Putin is most Ukrainians are sick of their government. They don't like Zelensky. They really would like to go back to the good old days and rejoin with Russia. And the, the, there's lots of evidence that you know billions of, of dollars have been spent on this network, and it's given Putin this message. So he thinks what's going to happen in February 2023 is, is a bit like Prague 1968. That is, a bunch of tanks are going to drive down the road into the capital city, at which point the leader, the president, will either flee or be arrested. There'll be a positive acclamation of a new order. There will be a, a Ukrainian friendly to Russia who will be appointed as president, followed by carefully managed elections that would return the right sort of government, and Ukraine would be brought back into the Russian fold. I think that's what Putin expects is going to happen. And he thinks that the lesson of all the conflicts he's been in up to this point and his experience of dealing with the West in Syria have all have all pointed to that. And of course, it goes wrong right from the very beginning, from Putin's point of view. Well, we're uh, we're running short of time, so I will skip Syria. But I do recommend any readers go to the Syria chapter. It's very very interesting example of the again the victory being hollow uh, with Assad as an erratic client and the background to the uh, great power play between Russia and Turkey. But I, I want to come to the quote you have right at the end, and whether whether you still feel confident in in this assertion. Quote: War has finally caught up with the warmonger. Should Russia's imperial dreaming survive its battering in Ukraine, and it's by no means certain that it will, it will be as a Potemkin empire existing only in the minds of those who parrot its tropes. I do, I do, and I think it becomes clearer with every every passing week. Um, I think you mentioned at the beginning the situation right now in Nagorno-Karabakh, and I think this is a really telling situation in terms of thinking about the the state of the Russian imperium, if you like. Because what you have in Nagorno-Karabakh now is an Armenian governing enclave essentially protected by Russian peacekeepers that has been embargoed for, I think, nine months now by Azerbaijan. And it seems that Azerbaijan is now set on taking by force. That is taking a region by force that is nominally protected or policed by Russian peacekeepers. And that tells us a whole amount about the credibility of Russian peacekeeping, because Armenia is a loyal Russian ally. Armenia has long recognized that its own security and that of Nagorno-Karabakh depends on the goodwill of of Moscow. It has remained within the CSTO and the CIS. It has been mute in its criticism of Russia over, over Ukraine. And yet we see a situation where Azerbaijan feels sufficiently confident that Russia is unable to do anything to stop Azerbaijan taking Nagorno-Karabakh, that it seems to be launching this assault. And this tells us something, that this Russian imperium is starting to fray, that Russia no longer has the military might or political influence it thought it did, um, and that its imperial pretensions are being kind of shown up. And, of course, it's so weak in Nagorno-Karabakh precisely because it's had to redeploy attention and resources in Ukraine. There's a similar story in in Syria. Russia's had to significantly um, withdraw forces from Syria 
in order to um, prop itself up in Ukraine. So I think very much we're seeing the collapse of that imperial dream. Not, But that's not to say that I think Putin is going to be removed from power or assassinated or that even if he is, that the next leader isn't going to continue playing up these tropes. It's just that this empire is going to become hollower and hollower until at some point there will have to be inevitably some sort of reckoning, some sort of collapse, because it is a, a Potemkin empire that rests not on the kind of willing consent of the people within it, but on a, an increasingly fragile military might. To finish, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guest to recommend two one broadly in his field and one personal choice. Alex, what have you chosen? Thanks, Tim. Well, for the one broadly in the field, I've gone for another one of uh, Sir Hyde Plocky's books, and I've seen that a few others have uh, recommended yeah. books to him. <laughs> I could have picked kind of any one of kind of half a dozen, but the one I've picked is one called The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union, where he, he holds a microscope up to those final five months of the Soviet Union from the failed anti-Gorbachev coup to the collapse of the Union, a, a period where you know we usually kind of just overlook, but he shows that what happened in that period was neither inevitable um, nor without consequence, and that what actually happened in that period explains a lot of what happened um, subsequently in the former Soviet space. And the second book, my sort of personal choice, utterly unrelated, is uh, Tom Holland's Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And this has probably been the book that's influenced me the most over the last few years, in which Holland basically shows that the way uh, we Westerners think about almost everything is shaped intimately by Christianity, Christian values about um, equality, about the last being first, a Christian sense of fairness that simply wouldn't have made sense to people before the Christian revolution has continued to shape the way um, we think about politics. And and kind of, I remember George Orwell saying something like it's the the most difficult thing to see is the thing that's right on the end of your nose. And I think that was the case with this, that Holland helps us to see why we think the way we think in, in fairly fundamental ways. Today, I've been talking to Alex J. Bellamy about Warmonger. Alex, thanks very much for coming on. Must be my pleasure. Thank you.